0: I was thinking on the last song um, how great it is to be able to worship our Lord freely like we can in this country. Um, I think I'm patriotic. I'm not way out crazily so, but there are churches all over the world where people are doing what we're doing today at great risk. I was reading recently that There have been a number of fires in churches, even in Western Canada. In the last few weeks, maybe you saw that. And very suspicious fires, and it looks like possibly somebody was engaged in trying to stomp out the gospel. Uh, So it's a great blessing that we have to be in this country. I have all kinds of connections um, with your church. I was reminded this morning that I interviewed Jeremiah for a position in a church that my church planted uh, in Pennsylvania. We would have stolen him from you if we could have. I'm glad things worked out for you. Uh, Probably one of the best interviews I've ever done of anyone. And we pretty much gave him a theological interview that would have been at least a foretaste of a good presbytery exam, and he did beautifully well. And of course, I've been connected with Phil for a long time and was engaged in, in sharing what was happening with the purchase of this building the first time around when you were praying and looking uh, at the possibility of buying it. And again, as I sat there, I was just amazed at what God has done in your midst, that you got what you felt God wanted for you, but you got it at a much lower price and that kind of thing because you had to wait. We're going to be talking about prayer this morning, and one of the things we all recognize is that sometimes the Lord gives us what we ask for. Sometimes he says no, and sometimes it's just wait. And of course, that's what uh, happened in your case. Gospel Growth Fund is thrilled to be able to be a part of what God is doing here in South Jersey. I'm a Jersey boy. I'm from Mount Holly. Anybody know where that is? Yeah, you know where that is. Exit 5, right? You always tell people what exit you're near if you live in New Jersey. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14. And would you follow as I read beginning at verse 32? Mark 14:32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would open our hearts to the message that you have for us this day. Father, we know that if your Spirit is not at work in us and in the instrument that you're using to communicate the word, it's very hard for anything lasting to take place. You can do anything. Jesus affirms that here. But Father, it's so much better when your Spirit is present with us, working in our hearts taking the Word of God, opening it to us, and driving it home to us. Father, I would pray that that would be the case this morning, that that would take place. Father, as we look at doctrine, as we look at the idea that Jesus is one person with two complete natures, that he suffers as a human in human nature, guard my tongue from speaking anything that would not be orthodox, I pray, Father, that the theology that's contained in this would be uh, accurate. But, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would bury the truth there, that when we come to a time of great trial and testing, that we would remember the lessons that we learn from Jesus as he prays in this situation. Father, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that as they see the terror of the hell that Jesus went through, for his elect, that you would work grace in their hearts, that they would respond savingly, that this might be their day to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and to have the cup that that Jesus drains never have to be drunk by them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In 1992, I went through one of the hardest things that I ever went through in gospel ministry. I had been a pastor for 18 years, and I was used to handling the normal problems that arise in people's lives and in a church, but this time it was completely different. I felt like I was an air traffic controller, or how they must feel, in a very busy airport when they have many planes in their space that they're responsible for and that they need to guide. I don't say this lightly, but Satan was really at work, and it felt like, all hell had broken loose in the church that I love so very much. It was just too much happening at once to be anything other than that. For the first time in my ministry, I, find, I found myself face down in the carpet in our family room, pouring out my heart to God, asking Him for strength to endure, asking Him to remove the situation that was raging in the church. I was anxious, I was fearful, I was emotionally exhausted. I was functioning, but barely so, given the crushing crushing load that was upon me. The only prayer position for me when I got to that point was prostrate on the floor, with my face down uh, in that carpet. Jesus had just celebrated Passover feast with his apostles. Judas had gone to make his bargain with the Jewish religious authorities, a bargain that would end in Jesus' arrest and in his sham trial and crucifixion. Jesus had taken the bloody rite of Passover, and he had renovated that feast and made it the bloodless sacrament of his supper. The Lord and his apostles left the upper room where they had celebrated the feast of Passover. They had gone out into the dark night. They had walked across the brook, Kidron, and they went to a garden. And when we look at Scripture, it seems very evident, we're absolutely told, I believe, that Jesus and his apostles went to this garden at least many of the nights of Passover, maybe each of them. They went there in order to avoid the crowds of the city of Jerusalem. The population just exploded during the feast. They went there to get quiet, to have some tranquility, to get away from the confusion and the noise of the city. Now, if you've ever been in a position like the position I described that I was in in 1992, then you can identify with what happens now not to the full extent identify with what Jesus went through but you maybe can have some approach to what he is experiencing uh, and understand a little bit of what is going on in Jesus mark 14:32 records Jesus and the 11 went to a place called gethsemane luke tells us in 22:39 that Jesus went there as was his custom. He went to the Mount of Olives, his disciples followed him. John records in John 18:1 through 1 and 2, he went across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. The garden is probably a garden of olive trees because Gethsemane, we think means uh, oil press or olive press. It was a regular place of fellowship for Jesus with his apostles, a place of uh, discussion time, a place of prayer, a place of tranquility. Now, whatever pleasantness Jesus had experienced in that garden on the previous nights of Passover, whatever he experienced would not be replicated on this night before his crucifixion. The dark terror of soul that our Lord experiences on this night in Gethsemane will only be surpassed by that which he experiences the next day as he hangs between earth and sky on a cruel Roman cross. The first thing I'd like us to see today in our text is that in this garden, we see that Jesus is fully human. In the garden experience, we see the full humanity of Jesus. Our text tells us in Mark 14.32 that Jesus said to eight of his apostles, sit here while I pray. Then in verse 33, we are informed that he took Peter, James, and John with him to a place away from the other eight. Now these three men have been alone with Jesus on other occasions where extraordinary events took place in his life. And there are various theories as to why these three were with Jesus on very special occasions. I ran into a new one as I prepared for this sermon. The great preacher and writer, G. Campbell Morgan, who lived from 1863 to 1943, thinks that Jesus took these three men on special occasions to be with him because they were the ones of the apostles who needed to be with him most, that they had weaker faith than the others. I had never heard that. But certainly the weakness of these three is going to be seen this night. These three had boasted that they would be with Jesus no matter what. James and John in Mark 10.39 have boasted of their willingness to suffer with Jesus. Peter in Mark 14.29-31 pledged a willingness to die with Jesus even if every one of the apostles, every other one of the apostles were to leave Jesus. What we see in our text here is that they don't even keep the command that Jesus gives them to watch and pray. So they are weak, they do need strength, they do need to pray, they do need to be with Jesus. But I think these three get to be witnesses with Jesus on special occasions for two reasons. One, you know that Peter, James, and John are going to play very special roles in the founding of the New Testament church. So it's reasonable to think that Jesus would spend more time with them because of the positions that they are going to hold. But this is really important. I think Jesus spends time with them because he felt especially close to them. Jesus is fully human, he's also fully divine. As a human, there was a need in him to be especially close to some of those where he shared a particular affinity. The chemistry was just right. He was human. It fit well. Uh, He liked these people. And so there was this closeness between them. And I think what Jesus shows us here in the garden, what we're going to see, uh, is indicative of that emotional and spiritual connection that was special that Jesus shared with these men. Now, as the four go to a place in the garden distant from the eight, Mark tells us in 14:33 through 34, Jesus began to be greatly troubled, distressed, and troubled. And he said to them, and this is so very important: My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, Jesus was focused upon his death, I believe, his entire life. This night when he was celebrating the feast, certainly he was focused upon his death. But when he takes these three to walk further in the garden, away from the other eight, all of a sudden a torrent, a great wave of terror that, that comes to Jesus because of his impending death just kind of comes over him uh, like a big flood wave would come Uh, over um, a village or a house or the shore. The only way that I can begin to identify with what happens to Jesus at this point in the narrative is for me to imagine and have you imagine that you go to a doctor's office to hear the results of the test that you've taken. You sit down, and the doctor speaks to you and says, I have really bad news The tests have concluded that you have a cancer, and it's one that doesn't respond very well at all to treatment. Think of how you would feel in that moment when you heard that. Jesus experiences feelings like that at this point, but he feels them to the fullest extent that any human can ever feel them because of what he faces. The horror that Jesus faces in just hours, that he can fully see with his mind's eye as he focuses upon it now, transcends any horror that you and I will ever have to experience if we are believers. It feels to Jesus like the thoughts that are before him, the things that he sees in his mind that are going to happen to him the next day, might actually kill him. Now, Mark 14, 34 records Jesus as saying to Peter, James, and John, remain here and watch. Luke records Jesus as saying in 2240, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Now, it's reasonable to think that Jesus asked on all of the occasions in all of the Gospels for these people, these men, to not only watch, but to pray with him. And these two commandments are often used by Jesus other places in Scripture. He'll say, pray and watch. So what I think is happening is that when you read the Gospels, sometimes one of the Gospel writers will say pray, one will say watch. But basically it means the same thing because in Scripture the two go together. They're often paired by Jesus. Now watch is the opposite of to sleep. To watch is to be wide awake, to be like a sentry at his or her post. Now, a sentry on a post is usually looking for difficulty that will come from the outside. But when the Bible calls upon us or commands us to watch, it usually is talking about watching within or watching our own actions, our thoughts, our heart, and our mind. Now here's why I believe Jesus has special emotional connection to these three followers. I believe it's seen here. Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, terrorized by the thoughts of the full meaning of the cross for him, chooses these three to be physically present with him. Matthew 26, 38 records Jesus as having said to these men, Watch with me. Jesus, again, is one person, two distinct natures, a fully divine nature, a fully human nature. As a human, in your most horrific experiences of life, don't you find a desire, a need, to have a couple of family members or friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, near you when you're called upon to go through a horrible experience? If you were to be wheeled into a surgical suite tomorrow morning, wouldn't it just feel better to have two or three close Christian friends nearby uh, with you when you get wheeled into the suite and for you to know that they were outside in a waiting room watching and praying uh, for you? The man, Christ Jesus, experiencing terror in his soul, needed the support of these men, his closest friends. Now, the Scripture tells us that Jesus leaves the three, Mark 14, 35, and he creates a little bit of distance between himself and them. Luke tells us in twenty-two forty-one that it was about a stone's throw, which is about 50 feet or less. And then Jesus falls down and he prays. Jesus needs to have close friends for emotional support of their presence. He desires them to pray for themselves and for Him. But He has to wrestle with God alone about the Lord's will in prayer. And so He leaves them to pray with Him and for Him. And He goes to struggle alone with this burden that He has, uh, struggle alone before his Lord. Now, if the man Christ Jesus needed strong connections to others of like precious faith, if he needed that to get through life, you need it too. A Christian man at the church where I have pastored for so many years told me at lunch a couple years ago that he didn't need any friends. He said, my wife needs friends, I just don't need any. Well, at that time in his life, I still think he was wrong, but everything was going swimmingly well for him. His world has been shaken. It has come apart every which way in the last three years, shaken to its foundation. Life is unpredictable. It's hard. Few of us get through life unscathed by trials and difficulties, few of us. God's Spirit has joined us with everyone else who has accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. We need to find some from that group to go much deeper with in relationship so that we can bear their burdens when they have them, and they can bear ours when it's our turn, so that all of us can fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love one another and to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. You need to take the initiative, if you haven't done it, to establish a deep level of connection with some people in the body of Christ so that when your crisis comes, you will be able to have support from them and you need to minister to others in their time of need uh, when they are in crisis. And we tend to do that when we have a close relationship. So Jesus is fully human. We see that in the garden we also see that prayer is a means of grace mark records in 1435 that jesus after leaving peter james and john within a distance by the way that probably allows for them to see jesus and to hear jesus that after that happens he fell on the ground and prayed matthew writes in 2639 that Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Luke records that Jesus knelt down and prayed. Now, we in the PCA believe that the Scripture is without error, totally without error. I believe that with all my heart. We believe that as God communicated to the people who wrote down Scripture, that when they wrote it, it was absolutely accurate. So I don't think there's any contradiction here when a gospel writer says he knelt with his face to the ground and prayed, or when a gospel writer says he was flat out prone on the ground praying. I don't believe at all that there's any contradiction. I mean, think about what's going on here. Uh, All of these can be true. Jesus prays on three separate occasions it could be that he started out praying on his knees with his head down, and then he spread himself out on the ground. No contradiction. Don't let things like this trip you up when you read Scripture. But both of, these, uh, both of these postures, so kneeling on the ground with your head in your hands, down on the ground maybe, or spread out on the ground with your face in the dirt, both of those are unusual for Jews. How did Jews pray? Usually, and Jesus did this on occasion, Jews prayed with their head uplifted, their hands uplifted to God, and they were standing. That's how they prayed. But remember what Jesus says here. His soul is sorrowful even to death. Praying on his knees with his face to the ground or praying prone with his face on the earth are the only postures that feel adequate for the level of weight that he's carrying for the burden that he bears. Now, this is what John Calvin says about his prayer posture. He says, by the very gesture of falling on the ground, Christ testifies to the real intensity of his prayer. He places himself in the lowest attitude Because of the greatness of his grief. Now Luke the physician writes in 22.44 that Jesus, being in agony, and that's a word for conflict. It's like a wrestler in a a wrestling contest prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now you've likely heard of cold sweats. Diaphoresis is a medical term for that. It's the fight and flight kind of thing where you break out in a cold sweat because you've seen the grizzly bear when you're on the trail in, in Montana. It's a body's response. It's a sudden sweating that doesn't come from heat or exertion, but from the body's response to stress. In the definition I looked up, it says it's a fight or flight kind of response. Now, what is this burden that terrorizes the soul of Jesus? And I cannot overstate what's going on in Jesus' mind and his heart. What is the war that rages within Jesus? Why is his body responding in the way that it is? How come countless martyrs have faced death, maybe being burned at the stake, and they don't experience anything? in many cases, like Jesus is experiencing here? Well, the answer is found in the words of Jesus' prayer in Mark 14, 36. Christ prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, that's key, from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If you look up cup, if you went to a concordance, looked up cup, traced it through Scripture, you would find that it's an experience that a person has to go through that could be a good one or it could be a very bad one. Jesus' cup was filled to the brim with the wrath of God that is the just dessert of every sinner, every elect sinner who would ever live. In just hours, in addition to suffering the slowest, cruelest death that man was able to invent, Jesus is going to bear our sins in his sinless person. He's going to be reckoned, counted, a sinner by his Father, and he's going to experience the punishment we deserve to experience for all eternity. It's going to be compressed and placed upon Jesus in a relatively small period of time. He will experience our hell so that we might escape it and be reckoned as holy as he is in the eyes of Almighty God. What Jesus experiences vicariously in this garden is what people without Christ are going to experience in resurrected bodies, mind you, for all eternity. Could that be you this morning? I mean, I hope you will see the terror that comes to Jesus' soul when he realizes what he's going to experience on the morrow. He's going to experience what sinners experience forever in hell. Could you be one who's going to experience that for all eternity? I believe that what Jesus goes through here should drive unbelievers to repentance and to faith in Jesus. It's the only way a person can escape the wrath of Almighty God that Jesus experiences in this garden. Jesus' physical and emotional reactions to the thought of drinking that cup should also motivate me and motivate you, if we know Jesus, to pray for our loved ones, to tell our loved ones about Jesus, to be bold. Usually we're more concerned about being liked than we are concerned about our relatives and loved ones suffering eternity. And the reason I know that is because we don't tell them about Jesus knowing this. Paul knew the terror of Almighty God and he said that caused him to preach the gospel to lost people. Without Jesus, the terror that our neighbors and friends and relatives experience is the terror he experienced, but it's forever. Now in Jesus' prayer we see a battle of wills and the battle is incredibly intense. There is the Father's will that Jesus drink this cup of his wrath as the substitute, the only substitute for sinners, and there is the will of Jesus. Remember, a human nature which recoils at the thought of bearing the sins of the world. Now Calvin again says this, It was not simple horror of death, but the sight of the dread tribunal, tribunal of God that came to Jesus. The judge himself armed with vengeance beyond understanding. When Jesus saw that, is it any wonder as a full human that he would pray that if there could be any other way whereby God could redeem lost people, that God would use that way? Now we see some other things in Jesus' prayer too. We see his absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. He said, Father, I know you can do anything. We see Jesus' unwavering confidence in, In the relationship he has with God even though his God is going to put him through it looks like something that's incredibly horrible he calls him father that's a term of love a term of endearment the son has unwavering confidence in the relationship he addresses God with his affectionate familial term In his prayer, we also see Jesus' complete submission to God's will. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not as I will, but as you will. In the garden, Jesus passes one more test. The test that he has faced from Matthew chapter 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus to bypass the cross. One more test. The tests never end until he cries out in his dying breath, it is finished. In Gethsemane, the test is, Will you do my will? And Jesus submits to the will fully. Absolute obedience for Jesus. It freed us from death through our, even though we have disobeyed God. Now there are things in life that you might desperately want, and there are things in life that you would like to avoid. It's fine to pray that you will receive or not receive these things that you want or don't want. If they're not contrary to God's revealed will in Scripture, no problem with praying. You may even want things or to avoid things that are contrary to Scripture. You may as well articulate those to God because He knows our hearts um, long before we pray. But when we pray, we dare not seek to demand to impose our will on our Heavenly Father. Instead, we are to pray for His will to be accomplished in and through us. This is how Jesus prayed. It's how He taught us to pray. We prayed this morning in the Lord's Prayer uh, that we're always to include in our prayers The understanding, whether we articulate it or not, that we want his will to be done. That petition is always to be there, whether we articulate it or not. We know, like Jesus knew, or we come to know, that God's will is always best for us, and it's best for his own glory. In agonizing face in the dirt prayer, Jesus resolved the struggle of his will versus God's will by choosing voluntary absolute surrender to the Father's will in his prayer uh, in his prayer struggle he is assured that his suffering and death experiencing hell is the only way for the Father to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in jesus romans 3 25. in his prayer jesus seeks uh sees that in order for elect sinners to be reconciled to god the lord must lay on jesus the iniquity of all who will believe now jesus returns to his prayer partners three times and he finds them sleeping on each of the first two occasions he confronts them with their failure to be alert and their need to pray. To pray for him, but also to pray for themselves, that they will not fail in the crisis that's coming for them. They're going to be tempted to uh, uh, leave Jesus and leave him alone, uh, to desert him. They need to pray that they have strength. Their, Their spirit is willing to be with Jesus, but they need to be strengthened in faith so that they can do it. Jesus addresses Peter in Mark 14, 37, but he's really addressing all the apostles. He uses a plural verb. The message is for each of the three. It's Mark 14, 38. Could you not watch and pray with me that you might not enter into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now Jesus returns to his place of private prayer two times after finding the sleeping apostles. Mark 39 informs us that his second and third prayers are basically the same as the first prayer that he offers. From reading Jesus' interactions with the three, when he goes back and finds them sleeping, it becomes obvious that our Lord has been strengthened by his first prayer and his subsequent prayers. Jesus' prayers haven't changed, but Jesus has changed. What Jesus has to experience is the same, but there's a radically changed Jesus. You can see it as you read it. The intense agony of soul that he experienced before his initial prayer has been dramatically lightened. Prayer does this to us. It changes us even when the requests that we make are not granted to us or they're not granted to us immediately. Prayer is a means of grace. God grows us and infuses us with strength when we come to him in our trials. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to go to Jesus for help in our time of need. In 4.15-16 through he writes, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That invitation to us to go to our high priest, who knows our struggles and who dispenses grace, is tied to Jesus' struggle in the garden. Have you seen that in the past in your reading of Hebrews? In a few verses, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the author of Hebrews writes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. That's a reference to the struggle in the garden that Jesus had. God strengthened Jesus as he does us, by his spirit and by his word, but he also sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. We read about that in Luke twenty-two forty-three. Now, angels, we are told, are ministering spirits that are sent to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. We read that in Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. It's perfectly good theology to think, to believe, that in your time of crisis when you pray, that God may send an angel or angels to come and to strengthen you when you're in your time of need pouring out your heart to God in trouble. The grace that Jesus received in prayer I think is best seen when he returns to his sleeping disciples for the last time look at it. He comes not as a panicked, depressed, nearly immobilized person. He comes back to them as one who's gained victory over his flesh, that he had reco- the, the thing that he had recoiled from, uh, the thing that was making his soul uh, so dark. In Mark 14:41 and 42, you see that. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. That's a radically different Jesus than the Jesus who goes deep into the garden with the three and is looking at what's ahead and is terrorized by it. Again, our Lord is one person with two natures, a fully human and a fully divine one. But he experienced in crucifixion The wrath of God poured out on humans as a sinless human. Only in human nature could he suffer punishment as the perfect substitute for human sinners. The Father's answer to the Son's prayer is no. It is not possible for the cup to be removed from you. You must drink it. But through prayer, Jesus has been made ready to confidently meet his captors boldly face his trials, and victoriously endure the cross. Do you think of prayer mainly as an access point to God to get the kind of things that you want to receive for yourself and for others? Well, that's one aspect of prayer, and feel free to ask James 4.2. James says, you do not have because you do not ask but Gethsemane teaches us that prayer accomplishes much more. Prayer brings our hearts into conformity with God's will. It brings God's grace to us to strengthen us in our struggles, and prayer also gives us access to the ministry of angels in our lives. Very briefly as we close, in the garden, thirdly, we're assured of Jesus' love for His own. To understand this event in Jesus' life is to begin to plumb, to just begin to plumb the depths of Jesus' love for you. The thought of having to experience the cross, as we've seen, panics Jesus. It creates anxiety, stress, that leaves him prostrate on the ground. It causes his body to react in ways that are far from normal. Cold sweat pours from his body it's also possible that the thought of ab- the absolute terror of God's wrath poured out on Jesus soul caused him to actually sweat blood in Luke 22:44, again Dr. Luke physician may not be using a figure of speech when he talks about the sweat falling like great great drops of blood He may be recording a phenomenon known to his profession where capillaries in people's sweat glands have known to have fractured, exploded, when they were experiencing severe trauma or stress. It's very rare, but there are documented cases of this happening in recent history. The blood comes out through the sweat ducts onto the ground. In the garden, Jesus confirms his unwavering commitment to drain the cup of God's wrath. He sees with his mind's eye God's tribunal and himself in the dock condemned as a sinner. What he vicariously experiences produces trauma and shock in his body. So much so that it could be that he's sweating literally drops of blood. I have sinned against a thrice holy God, and you have too. I deserve to drain the cup that Jesus drinks forever in hell, without any end. You do as well. But for repentant sinners who believe in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, Jesus drained the cup, and we never even have to sip it. In Gethsemane, God's answer to Jesus' request is, there's no other way to save sinners, no alternative to your sacrifice. But Jesus' love for you and for me is so intense that he wills to do the Father's will, to do the things the mere thought of, which caused him so much stress that he thought the very thoughts might kill him. In uh, 1860, there was a poem written. Two years later, there was music written that went with that particular poem. This created a hymn that has been sung around the world for 160 years. It's known everywhere. It begins with one of the most profound theological statements that has ever been made. The statement is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That statement is true. Gethsemane proves that it is. Have you experienced Jesus' love? If not, maybe today is your day. Recognize your sin, your need for a Savior, in the quietness of your heart, ask Jesus to come into your life, take away your sins, tell Him you want Him to be your Savior and Lord. Father, thank you for the attention of your people. Thank you for the opportunity to mine your word. Thank you for showing us Jesus, for lifting him up in our midst. Father, as we come to the table of the Lord now, a sacrament, Father, that signs and seals much of what we have been talking about. We pray, Father, that we might hold the elements, we might partake them, and realize what Jesus suffered for us and realize as we drink this cup, that because Jesus drained the cup of your wrath, we will never have to experience drinking it forever in hell. Father, work to these ends in our midst, but also do whatever you would be pleased to do as we think upon your word, and as we participate in that which signs and seals it, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro. Off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University, we'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.